Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Nick Myers to the show. Nick Myers is the co-founder and CEO of Phoenix Tailings, a company building a sustainable future by refining metals from mining waste with zero direct carbon emissions or toxic byproducts. Before founding Phoenix Tailings, Nick worked in venture capital at Techstars and was the director of finance and partnerships for Minta, a medical diagnostic testing startup. He also co-founded Huntington Angels, a strategic angel investment group where he now serves as the lead outside advisor. Nick was also a founding member of Tengu, an early Web3 startup that created one of the first stable coins. At Tengu, Nick briefed the IMF about decentralized finance and cryptocurrency's impact on the world economy. Nick, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, Raj. Thank you so much for having me. Nick, thank you for joining, and I'm very excited to kick up this conversation. Before we get to Phoenix Tailings, I'd like to start with what might seem to be a strange place, but I believe it's had quite an influence on your life. I'd like to start with the topic of baseball. How has baseball influenced your life? <laughs> well, baseball was, uh, I started when I was about 11 years old, uh, pretty late for, uh, for a kid growing up, but was really excited about it, loved it immediately. Uh, started playing through high school. I uh, wasn't very good at it but when I first started, but I worked really, really hard to become good. I was one of the top players in the high school team uh, and eventually went to college to play baseball and study physics, you know, but mostly play baseball is really what it went out to be. I wanted to play pro. That was one of my top goals that I had. Uh, I worked really, really hard, but unfortunately I had a really tough go. Uh, my junior or my uh, sophomore year, I actually ended up being pushed as a, I was a pitcher. I was pushed to the back end of the bullpen. So I was not one of the top players. I was doing terribly. I remember sitting down one day and saying, I'm not going to let this happen. I'm going to work my butt off until I get to a point where I can be the best player on the team and the best player in the league and go pro. And that's what I did. And I eventually I became one of the best pitchers on the team, one of the best pitchers in the league. And I like to think that I had a half a cup of coffee at least uh, with the Twins and a few other major league teams. Uh, unfortunately, my senior year, I got hurt and I wasn't able to continue the way I would like. But uh, it was one of the most influential, impactful things of my entire uh, career, I will say. And a lot of leadership lessons I've learned today actually come from baseball. And I cannot express to you how much I recommend people to play baseball or play a sport at least growing up. But uh, I think nothing teaches you more than the sport of baseball about how to be a leader, how to be a CEO, and how to uh, bring together a group of people to solve incredible problems. Tell me about a few of those leadership lessons you've learned that have translated over into you know, real civilian life. Absolutely. Uh, the first that I always like to highlight is uh, you know, the best, uh, the best hitter in baseball is successful, uh, 30% of the time. It's a 300 batting average, right? Uh, and the best pitcher in baseball, you know, you have your stuff, uh, going one out of five, every five times, really. So you fail a lot and every pitcher in baseball who's ever been anywhere successful has thrown the ball right down the middle of the plate 
I had that ball knocked 500 feet out of the park. <laughs> I cannot express to you how helpful it is to have had that experience go forward, feeling like the whole world has ended around you because everyone was counting on you to throw a good pitch, strike that person out, and now you just lost the entire game for everyone. And at the time, it feels like the whole world's crashing around you. I will tell you from being a CEO, it feels like a lot of that all the time. And learning how to pick yourself up and take it day by day, throw the next pitch, get up there, go on the mound again, and be able to keep pushing. That is the by far the best lesson I've ever learned in my life. So I'm not a big watcher of sports, but I'm fascinated by sports mentality. And I'll tell you what, what I mean by that is that, you know, I'll watch a team lose terribly. Let's say it's a football game on a Sunday. And I don't understand what the training is to how you have to have a short enough memory to forget about that, pick yourself up and start again the following Sunday. Can you share some of those perhaps learnings regarding specifically that having a short memory? Yeah. I don't know if there's a skill behind it, but I, I will tell you, I remember I let up a, a game ending home run, so walk off home run as a pitcher, which is like the worst thing you want to do. Like it's terrible. Everyone hates you at the end of the game. You get off the field. Just the world is awful. Um, at the end of the day, you take that whole day and you sit there and you sit in your, your, your stool, I guess, and you, uh, you stew on it. You think about it. You hate that feeling. You hate it more than anything in the world. But you let that drive you. You let that push you to be better. You don't let it break you. You don't let it cause fear. You have to go to bed that night and say, okay, you know what? We're going to put this behind us. We're going to focus on the next pitch. So you go to bed. You wake up the next day and you push. You work hard. You do everything right. You look back at the, at the history of what happened understand what you did wrong so you can learn to be better. But at the end of the day, you can't let it affect you mentally. You can't let it be make you afraid. And you have to be ready and say, okay, I didn't work out before. No problem. It'll work out again because I'll make it work out this time. That's amazing. Now, you mentioned studying physics. I'm sure as a pitcher, that might have been an intrigue for you too to perhaps apply your studying of physics to baseball. Yeah, actually, I did a, uh, my junior thesis uh, in college was actually on the physics of pitching. Uh, I specifically studied the knuckleball and uh, Mariano Rivera's cutter. Uh, I'm a Red Sox fan, of course, diehard Red Sox fan, just to clarify for everyone. But uh, Mariano Rivera's cutter is actually one of the most unhittable pitches in uh, baseball. So I got to study it from a physics standpoint and really understand how, why that was the case. So it was pretty cool. So as a physics layperson, why is that the case? Well, essentially the pitch moves uh, after the, the hitter has already made the decision to swing. It only moves a couple of inches, but because of the, the speed at which the ball is going and the speed of the break, uh, it actually breaks after the pit, uh, the hitter has decided to swing. So the hitter physically cannot hit it except for by accident. So is it a combination of, I guess, um, velocity and friction? Uh, yes, velocity and spin, right? So uh, you have the friction that it causes the uh, uh, ooh, the Borealis effect. No, I, remember, I remember off the top of my head. No, the Bernoulli principle. That's Bernoulli principle. Same thing as flight. Yes, exactly. So you develop different pressure zones on the side of the ball, right? And because it's moving so, um, the ball is spinning so fast there, it generates uh, the different pressure zone, which allows it to move, right? But because Mariano's ball is moving so fast, the ball is spinning at the right speed that it breaks after the hitter, the hitter has already started the swing. The batter has already determined the path of the bat that's going to happen. The ball will break after that. So it's physically not possible to see, which is pretty cool. It sounds amazing. Now, I'm sure you and I can spend the entire hour talking about physics and baseball, but let's switch to Phoenix Tailings. Can you give us an overview of Phoenix Tailings and your role at the organization? Yeah, of course, of course. 
let's see. So Phoenix Tailings actually, you know, uh, from a high level, we're founded about four years ago or so. Uh, I actually met my co-founder, Dr. Tomas Villalon, at a Bible study of all things, and started talking about the biggest problems in the world. One being actually how much waste is produced in the world and how much toxic sludge is there. And also the types of metal we need for the next generation technologies, where we're getting those. The fact is it's incredibly hazardous to get access to these things like rare earth metals, lithium, iron. Uh, all of these materials are incredibly hard to access and we don't have the supply we need to power the next generation of renewable technologies, electric vehicles, or all these different uh, applications. So Tomas and I said, okay, we got to find a way to solve this problem. So he brought in Michelle Chow, our co-founder uh, from MIT as well. Uh, Tomas went to MIT, there's undergrad PhD at uh, BU and Michelle and him uh, worked together at MIT. And I brought in Anthony Maladin who worked with me in private equity. Anthony came from South Africa, which is a huge problem with mining waste there. And the four of us built the first prototype in the backyard of Cambridge, Massachusetts, processing a little bit of bauxite residue, which is you know a byproduct of alumina production, pulling out a little bit of iron and a little bit of rare earth concentrate. That's the precursor material to the rare earth metals that are the main component for magnets, which are powering electric vehicles and wind turbines. You know, uh, fast forward today, you know our whole mission is to be the world's first fully clean mining and metals production company with no waste no carbon emissions and entirely sustainable from an environmental standpoint, a societal standpoint, because this impacts people's lives heavily and an economic standpoint, because we want this to scale. So, you know, today we have about 18 people full time, you know, I'm the CEO of the organization. I work with my co-founders very heavily um, to be able to build this organization uh, from the ground up. We're one of the first producers of rare earth metal itself uh, outside of China, which is hugely exciting for us. To be able to supply that needed material, you know, still small scales, but we're ramping that up pretty quickly. And we're looking to be able to pull it from actual mining waste. So instead of doing what the normal mining industry is and destroying environments, destroying ecosystems, we're actually changing that mindset and saying, okay, well, mining can be very positive for the world. So let's clean up the world in the process of creating these new raw materials that can power the next generation technologies, making these raw materials, these metals, as sustainable as the technologies they empower. So that's Phoenix. So divine intervention led you here? <laughs> I like to think so. <laughs> okay, you mentioned a couple of things. For those that aren't aware, what is a tailing storage facility and what does it look like? Of course. So people think that mining today is just going out with a pickaxe or a shovel and, and digging up a nugget of gold, right? Uh, that's actually that's not what, the that, that That's what the movies tell us. That's what the movies tell us, right? Uh, I think it's funny because it's still, you know, I, I think you probably could do that somewhere in the world, but for the most part, we're out of, we're, we don't have any nuggets anymore. So the way mining today works is you uh, pretty much dig up the entire mountainside uh, or a canyon or a land and you process it. You put all of that dirt into this, uh, into these massive vats or chemicals and materials and grinding equipment and a bunch of other different types of equipment. But you essentially pull out the material that you want, say it's gold in this case. But all the other stuff that's in that rock that's what you don't want uh, is mixed with those chemicals that you processed it with, right? Now, you know, you recover as much as you can to be recycled and make it economic, but for the most part, it's still stuck with the chemicals, right? So, and you have to store that material somewhere. You can't just, you know, put it anywhere. It's toxic waste, really, in a lot of cases, right? Not all the time, but most of the time. And so they store that in these massive landfills called tailings ponds. Tailings being the byproduct of that production for your raw material. In the case of gold, uh, tailings are primarily filled with cyanide, which I always like to share because that's the same chemical if you like James Bond that, you know, the assassins you know, will bite that cyanide pill to kill themselves. 
imagine that with uh, 100 million tons in this massive, uh, as far as your eyes can see, uh, landfill. It's this liquid sludge that just sits there and leaches in the groundwater and sits there forever. It's pretty nasty stuff. How long does it sit there for usually? Well, it depends on the case. Uh, most mines do have some remediation uh, in their um, in the initial like uh, permits that they get, so they have to remediate it after the time, and they have a trust to do so. But from a technical standpoint, that material will sit there in, uh, forever. So not all mines are able to do that. Some a lot of times go out of business before they're able to handle it. And so we've seen some sites like in upstate New York, which is the place you would never imagine this would be, that has tailings ponds from 60 years ago that are just sitting there. And it's now owned by the state, and they're looking to figure out what to do with it because it's just sitting there. Uh, and it causes health hazards, health issues, things that are beyond regulation because the mining companies were able to get that into the regulation. It's fine. It's okay. And it's from there a very long time ago. And not anyone, no one's being malicious, of course, but it's pretty nasty stuff. So there are health hazards that come with it that people don't realize. So uh, it's important to take care of it. Well, speaking of health hazards, you mentioned earlier that uh, you and Tomas started experimenting. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know where the question is going. Yeah. Um, did you like walk over to a TSF and just kind of pour yourself a cup? <laughs> we were able to get a uh, uh, a sample of bauxite from a uh, from a friend. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that something you find on the street corner in Boston? Uh, well, you'd be surprised with MIT nearby. Some some strange things happen. <laughs> I and think you, we actually got our dry ice from the street corner. That's I'm actually pretty positive that's exactly how that happened. You know a guy that knows a guy, huh? Yeah. Uh, There's a parking lot with the dry ice people, actually. Now that I remember that. Uh, that was yeah. pretty solid. <laughs> I like that. So you mentioned a fully, I believe, sustainable facility. What would your facility look like? Is it modular? Is it containerized? What does it look like? Yeah, think of it like a normal manufacturing facility, really. Um, we do have it modularized, so it is... Uh, it is uh, in sequential from a technology standpoint, but it's all pretty much in the same building. Uh, it'll look very similar to normal mining companies, except for we're not digging up stuff. Uh, thankfully, the material's already been dug up for us. That's really helpful. Uh, so it really just goes into our processing facility and we process it and pull out the material. We have two parts of our process. So there's one, what we call stage one, and we actually talk in terms of customer to the ground. So it's a little bit opposite of what you'd think, but if you think of the customer being the automotive company. Uh, making, say, the new uh, Chevrolet electric vehicle, um, uh, say, the new Chevrolet electric Corvette, if I, if I will, which I think is really cool, and I hope that comes out soon. But um, they need a neodymium iron boron magnet. So we make the metal that's called neodymium in that case. Uh, we would sell to them. Our stage one is our actual production of neodymium metal from a concentrate. Uh, we start off right now, we're using mine concentrate. Other, other mines are processing it, normal traditionally, but we're using our innovative technology to process that and turn it to metal. Still small stages. So right now it's at about a 3,000 square foot facility, moving to about a 15,000 square foot facility, able to pump out a metric ton of rare earth metal per month. Um, after that, as we go in the next stages, we'll be at 100 tons and then 1,000 tons per month, hopefully. you know, Give me a little bit, but we'll get there. Uh, to be able to produce uh, actual metal, this would be from mine concentrate. But while we're doing that, we're actually starting the process on our stage two, which is at the, at the mining site. Once we find the right mining site to operate on, right? the right tailings facility that has the right amount of material in it that we want to work with and et cetera. And we actually build up on that. That'll look like a more like a mining facility itself or processing that tailings and pulling out what's called the concentrates from that. Uh, we're looking to scale that up pretty soon, which we're pretty excited about. So will you pump 
the slurry directly from the tailing storage facility or will the existing mine now send byproduct directly your way? So it depends. Um, if it's an active site, we look to have the mine just send the, the new byproducts our way. It's a little easier. They already have the pipeline for it. And, uh, just reroute the pipeline to us, right? It's pretty simple. Uh, we don't always look for active mine sites to operate with, right? So a lot of the sites we look at, uh, a few that are pretty uh, exciting, uh, are actually legacy ponds owned by a state government or a county government. Uh, and so in that case, we would actually pipe it from the facility itself. Now, you mentioned legacy ponds. Yes. Can you give us an idea of how many legacy ponds there are? Let's just say in the United States, for example. So actually, I don't know how many there are in the U.S. The only number I've heard is that Colorado has 23,000 sites alone. 23,000 just in Colorado? Just in Colorado. So that's the number I got when I was out in Colorado and they were talking about it. So uh, about the abandoned mine sites with the corresponding tailings ponds. So there are a lot of tailings ponds. Not all are terrible. Not all are horrible, what you'd imagine as being horrible, this disgusting pile of sludge. Some are just piles of dirt, bear in mind. Um, but uh, throughout the U.S., there are thousands, if not millions, if we get to that point, uh, ponds. Uh, because every mining activity since the dawn of time ever has had waste brought from it, right? Some bad, some good. Or, well, maybe not good, but, you know, not terrible is what I should <laughs> say. So, uh, and there's plenty of it. I just want to draw it to the audience's attention that if they go to YouTube and look up tailing storage facilities, tailing dams collapses, I think I watched videos, especially one from Brazil happened a few years ago. I mean, it could be a really terrible accident. Oh, yeah. Uh, actually, our, our um, head of sales, Balaz Sarkany, um, was is from Budapest. He's from Hungary. And Hungary, and I believe it was 2010, they actually had a red mud disaster where Mal, the Hungarian alumina company, uh, had their tailings pond break. And it spilled into the Danube River, which is the lifeblood of all of uh, Budapest, right? All of Hungary. And so destroyed countless parts of the environment. That's not even factored into their $695 billion or million dollar fine that bankrupted the company. But it actually uh, killed 10 people in the process um, they, who died from chemical burns uh, from this toxic sludge. Uh, and so Balaj, uh, his father is from the, uh, one of the insurance companies actually doing the cleanup. And so we, when he found out out of Phoenix, he was like, oh my gosh, I have to be involved. This is incredible. So that's exactly the type of thing that we look to avoid. Now, you mentioned neodymium. neodymium is that correct? Neodymium. correct. Neodymium. Yeah. If you were to rank the metals, perhaps from a either a demand perspective or even from a profitability perspective, what would that list look like? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so the demand perspective, uh, the hot items right now that everyone talks about are neodymium, Praseodymium, dysprosium, and terbium. The reason being is that they sell a pretty high price, right? Neodymium being about $250,000 a metric ton, dysprosium being a little over $400,000 a metric ton right now. And, but they're the primary metals used to create a neodymium iron boron magnet, which is the high performance magnet that you need for all electric vehicles. And the quote that I've heard is Tesla's fleet alone is going to take 49% of the world's supply of neodymium just Tesla. Plus you have all these other companies, right? That's amazing. And let me get your views on national security Mm -hmm. and why perhaps an advantage to what you're doing from national security perspective, why people should be interested. Well, if you think about it, 
Today, 97% of our supply of neodymium, dysprosium, presidymium come from China. Uh, there are, it is mined in other places like MP Materials. They mine it actually in California. However, that's sent to China today. MP Materials sends their concentrate to China to process into metal and make into magnets. So 97% of the supply, I think the other 2% is in from Russia, and then 1%, I believe, Malaysia. <laughs> Friends everywhere. Friends everywhere, right? So say we get into, say, you know, something crazy, like a trade war, or China shuts down for some sort of, you know, virus or something, something insane like that, right? Uh, or maybe even a full war with China or Russia or one of these groups, right? Well, how are we going to get the magnets? How are we going to get the metal that we need to make the magnets that goes into our electric vehicles? But not just our electric vehicles. What about our tanks? What about our airplanes? our cell phone, our computer, all of this requires that metal. And if we don't have access to it, we're going to lose a war with China. Not because we don't have the best fighter, not because we don't have the best soldier, not because of our, uh, our people aren't the best absolute people on the battlefield, but simply because we don't have the raw materials that we need to compete with them in a prolonged engagement. That's pretty challenging. That's hard to hear as an American, I will say. You know, I'm sure you've been paying attention to the most recent climate bill. You know, we're in the middle of August almost, and I don't know if you saw one of the items in that bill is the, I think, $7,500 tax credit for EVs. Mm -hmm. However, a stipulation is that the majority of the material used to build the EV has to come from the U.S. and not from China. Mm -hmm. It's going to be tough. It's very tough. I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm not sure where, you know, Ford or any of the domestics currently source their batteries from, but yeah, it's the challenge. It's and this is why one of the reasons we're building Phoenix, you know, uh, beyond the rare earths, right? We have iron that will go into steel production and things like that, uh, and pigments for paint and a few other things too. But the U.S. needs to eventually get away from relying on China or other countries and diversify our supply source of materials. Or so if there's a supply shock like there was before, it's going to be a huge issue. Which is what the which is what the infrastructure bill is really geared toward to try to facilitate that and support that um, so that we can build it here in the U.S. Actually bring back those manufacturing jobs along the way too. Now, when I was researching a number that I came across, and I could be wrong, but your processing has the potential to extract more metal from the waste than is currently being extracted during the mining process. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah. So, well, if you think about it, let's just take alumina production. Uh, This is a process... uh, uh, called the Bayer process, right? So it makes alumina, which is a little white powder that they eventually melt into aluminum, which is the metal used in, say, a MacBook. Um, well, that process actually takes bauxite, which is this red rock or red dirt, if you will, puts um, soda in it, uh, it's a type of uh, chemical, and pulls out the alumina. But the alumina itself is only about 30% of the total bauxite. So you have 60% left or 70% left that's bauxite residue. Uh, that's the remaining product. That's the tailings itself. And so we take that material and we're harvesting the whole value of that, starting with the iron, which is about 50%. So you're already getting more metal out by just harvesting the iron than the alumina, plus the rare earths, plus the other alumina that's remaining in there, and titanium in some cases, and a few other different products as well. Because we're looking to not just use the one target metal, which is what mining thinks of today, we're actually changing the mindset and saying, okay, well, how do we build technology to access the entire value of an ore source, leaving nothing behind? Do you know if any of the mining companies have already looked into doing something similar? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all the major mining companies spend billions of dollars on uh, recovery of metals from their tailings in various different ways. But 
you know, they have a huge gap. Is the fact is that Rio Tinto, for example, um, you know, the whole market for rare earths is seven billion dollars. Uh, some claim ten, some claim seven. You know, it's a whole other place, but it's about around that amount. Rio Tinto, its last dividend was nine billion dollars, right? Right. <laughs> so Rio Tinto doesn't care about that market. So yeah, they have some publicity around it. They look a little bit here and there at it, but their whole mission is not that. They're looking to recover as much metal as physically possible, as quick as possible, with no ramifications beyond that. Uh, their mindset is six months to a year out, and that's when they have their yearly reports, right? And they need to show uh, quarterly and yearly earnings to their investors. If they are uh, spend all this money to raise $2 billion to build an iron ore mine, and I tell them I'm going to go get rare earths, they're going to look at me like I got six heads. <laughs> so it's a bit of a different approach, you know? Understandable. Now, you mentioned, I think you said totally sustainable facility mm -hmm. what what are the plans to power your facility well working on that we're looking to resource renewable energy um we have a few different sites that we're looking at engaging with that we do very actively look with partners that actually do the renewable energy side we of course are not a renewable energy company so we don't but we do look very actively to do that uh, right here in massachusetts we're actually looking to pull in uh, renewable power as well which is pretty exciting um, but our big claim is you know because of our process we don't actually put uh, fire here, so we don't use we don't dump out carbon emissions in the process of producing metal, which alternatives do, which is the big difference. So, any particular kind of renewable energy? Uh, I like solar personally. I think it's really good. We're just looking to overcome the the, the price fluctuations with night and day. Uh, but wind power tends to be the big one that looks uh, to be a big target. So, combination of solar, wind, and then storage, obviously. Precisely. Understood. So, you've been doing this for about four years now. What are some of the lessons you've learned about yourself in your journey? Don't play with toxic chemicals without gloves. <laughs> how, many, how many fingers do you have? <laughs> I have all 10. <laughs> Thanks to Tomas's quick thinking. <laughs> what happened? No, no. Well, uh, it's a funny little story. but I'd love to hear it. So when we were first starting, we were in the backyard. Um, and Sorry, I'm, just I'm, I'm just imagining like you and your co-founder Tomas in a backyard with this red mud that you've uh, accessed right. <laughs> yes uh yeah that's exactly what it was well it was on his porch technically um and uh michelle and anthony were there as well and um well we had a bunch of assets and stuff and processing it you know at the time uh well the first time is that okay well they had a bunch of clouds coming through and i was like i walked through it by accident and wow that was a head rush of walking through the acid fumes. <laughs> that, that put me on my butt a little bit for there. But then we decided to move into a lab and Tomas gave me this one chemical to hold um, that uh, was one of the more uh, recent chemicals that we've worked with that are more unstable, if you will. And he said, hey, Nick, whatever you do, don't drop this. I said, okay. <laughs> I brought it into the lab, the new lab they were moving into, this one small space, and I slipped a little. <laughs> <laughs> I dropped that <laughs> onto the floor, uh, which made an interesting noise. And Tomas ran over, panicked, and said, "Okay, okay, we got to fix this now." So we were, able, we were able to quickly round up the right chemicals to clean it up with. But I think that lab still has a little bit of a mark in it from that. And I am no longer allowed to hold toxic chemicals in our lab, which is the new thing. That's pretty interesting for a pitcher or baseball guy. <laughs> no, ironically. I know, right? <laughs> to be fair, I was never good at the catching part, much better than the throwing part. Well, besides um, the dealing with chemicals, what else have you learned about yourself? Uh, well, I will say 
um, things that I've learned about myself. I'm a very driven person. I think that, uh, to an extent of uh, someone insane a little bit. Um, I, you can't be like this without uh, having that passion, having that drive. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I've learned that I really do have. Uh, and that's one of the positive things. One of the challenging parts is, hey, look, I have a lot to learn. I'm a young founder. I'm a first-time founder. And there's a lot of different things that I really honestly thought I would be good at that I'm not. Uh, managing people is one of the things that I take a lot of lessons from baseball to be able to do effectively, especially dealing with uh, with folks when things aren't going well. I think anyone can deal with people when things are going great. I think uh, when things go poorly or there are challenges, and don't get me wrong, doesn't matter how good your startup is, I promise you there are challenges. If someone says there's no challenges, they are absolutely lying to you. But uh, I've learned that I, I have a long way to go as far as learning how to be a manager, how to be a CEO, how to have that presence amongst the team and really inspire change, right? It's pretty challenging along the way, but I'll tell you what, the first part, that driven, that determination, that grit is something I do have. Maybe it does come from baseball, but uh, I definitely will be able to overcome anything with the right people around us to be able to do so uh, because you know our team's great. They help me get through everything and we help them throughout the whole thing and all of us together are pretty successful. What's one of the big biggest challenges you're experiencing right now? Well, scaling up production is always a big challenge. I don't necessarily mean in terms of the science. That's not really it. Interestingly, the biggest challenge that we're having at the moment is simply the operations and infrastructure. Right? We don't have the real estate that we need to be able to actually build this cell um, because the market's been in flux and it's been challenging to find the right real estate. Uh, we need to be able to produce more metal effectively and actually run an operation that can actually produce metal at a scalable business way, uh, not just a science project, which is challenging, of course, right? Uh, our team has been building an R&D production for a while, and now we're shifting over to be that full commercial facility. And there's definitely a lot of learnings along the way, and it's definitely a huge challenge for us. Uh, but we're getting there, thankfully, to the awesome people that we have on the team. You know, it's interesting you say that um, our core company, Nexus, we're actually an engineering firm. And what we see, some of the challenges, one of the biggest challenges that we always we come across is a company trying to go from pilot or demonstration to scale mm -hmm. and that and that journey. And you're, you know, you're hitting all the nails in the head regarding some of the challenges. You mentioned square footage, you mentioned production capacity, quality of product coming out the other end. So mm -hmm. I totally understand what you're saying. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. Uh, the real estate in particular, if anyone on the call knows any good real estate, you let me know. Um, absolutely. I mean, we can talk offline regarding that too. You awesome. know, I, I was in South Carolina with our lead developer back in June and I was, his name is Jake. And I asked Jake, I said, what are some of the biggest problems? He said, Site, site, and site. Is that location story? Yep. Location, so, location, location. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. So transitioning to the future, let's say it's 2030, your favorite publication, Fast Company, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Fortune. If they were to write a headline or perhaps a short paragraph about Phoenix Tailings, it's where you get to cast your vision. What would you like it to read? Phoenix Tailings saved the world. I think is exactly the headline it would be. Um, talking about the how we're able to power the future of technology, all the technology in 2030 will be every day. Right? And that Phoenix Tailing has enabled the entire world to get to that point without using toxic processes, without destroying the environments, without destroying an entire country to access the one material and without causing bribery or destroying Aboriginal sites, all the horrible things that you hear about mining on TV. Um, the Phoenix Tailings was able to change that mindset. And now, in 2030, the only way to mine material is by harvesting the waste. The only way to mine material is sustainably, using every scrap of the raw materials that you have, every scrap of the ore, 
And then today in 2030, it's crazy to think about having a toxic process of mining, that every mining company is the most ethical company you could possibly see. That would be what I wanted to read. Long way to go, you know, but eh, we got eight years to figure it out. I love the statement. Some that are listening might think that it's far-fetched, but I challenge those people to really go and research the challenges around mining. And you mentioned, you know, some of the toxicity that goes into the water supplies, some of the conditions. And I had the pleasure of, I think I mentioned before we started recording, researching not only Phoenix, but also just the tailings and waste and around the world. And I really think there's a really grand ecosystem opportunity here that you're actually doing with Phoenix Tailing. So I'm a big fan and I look forward to seeing your vision come to fruition. Thank you, Raj. That's good to hear. I really appreciate the support. Absolutely. Now, last question, and this could be professional or personal, but if you could share some advice, words of wisdom or recommendations with the audience, what would it be? So there's a, there's a little bit to it. Uh, the first being, um, I think a lot of people are looking to figure out what they want to do in their lives. I think a lot of people struggle with figuring out what is their mission? What is, what is their goal? What is their purpose? Why are they here? Uh, for me, I got a really good piece of advice that I always like to pass along to everyone. I, uh, cause it helped me found Phoenix Tailings. It helped me get involved here and help me figure out what I want to do. Looking back at your life, um, on your deathbed, what are your metrics for success? If you can define that in a very, very crisp way, only you have to understand what it means, but you have every step of your life focused to that end mission, whether it's the food that you eat in the morning, uh, the woman that you marry, the job that you take, all of this should be in pursuit of that end mission. You can have in pursuit of that end mission, you'll be very successful. And that helped me guide my entire path and I pass that along to everyone I meet. I think it's very important. Um, and the second thing I'd like to, to share, I always think it's very important as well, is that um, my mother always said the quote, but uh, no one who ever did anything great did it alone. And it's the people around you who make you great. So find a good group of people, work with them, find the best people in the world, and you'll figure out any problem that you'll ever come across. I think that's the absolute best piece of advice I could ever give anyone. I love that advice. And perhaps I would end that with find your own version of a Bible study. Absolutely. Find your own version of the Bible study. Absolutely. Definitely agree. Well, Nick, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Wish you all the best with Phoenix Tailings and look forward to catching up with you again soon. Looking forward to it as well, Raj. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website nexuspmg.com and while you're there you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech green tech sectors bigger than us is a nexus pmg production